2 Samuel chapter 3. So we closed last week. David is reigning in Hebron. So he is uh, in a town in Judah, which is his native tribe. The men of that tribe have anointed him king. So now he's king. It's this partial fulfillment of the God's destiny, God's calling on his life to reign over Israel. He reigns in Hebron for seven and a half years, just over that one tribe, over the tribe of Judah at the same time. So Hebron's down there in red. Mahanaim is up there in green. That's where Ishbosheth, who is Saul's lone surviving son, is reigning, and he's not really reigning. Uh, Abner, who's Saul's cousin, commander of the army, is really the power behind the throne, and he is put Ishbosheth in power, and Ishbosheth is reigning over all of the rest of Israel. David has Judah in the south, and Ishbosheth has the rest of the tribes in the north. And he reigns for two years. It appears to me to be the last two years of David's reign. And we closed last week, the end of chapter 2, there's a big battle in that yellow dot, Gibeon. Um, excuse me, Abner brings forces down right on the edge of David's territory, very provocative move. Joab, who's David's nephew, the commander of his army, battle, and David's troops win. And the, the way that chapter 2 closes and chapter 3 opens is the house of David is growing stronger, while the house of Saul is growing weaker. And chapter 3 is really a, um, a fleshing out of that statement. In chapter 2, we saw militarily, that David's house is growing stronger while Saul's is growing weaker. And we'll see in some other ways that that is happening here in chapter 3. So chapter 3, verse 1, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Machah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were, the, these were born to David in Hebron. So David's family is growing stronger, or David's house is growing stronger in terms of the military victories, and we see in terms of his literal families, biological families. Sons were considered gifts from the Lord. We see David here has six sons by six different women during this seven and a half year period that he's in Hebron. There's only one male heir in Saul's family right now that we know of, Ishbosheth. He's his only son, and he doesn't have any kids as far as we know. He's not recorded to have any. So again, we have this contrast between the strengthening of David's house and the weakening of Saul's house. Uh, just a side note, if you read six wives, and is that, is that okay? Um, it, it was customary for kings to marry multiple women. A lot of those marriages were really more like alliances than what we think of when we think of a marriage. It was political in nature. We saw one of those. Um, the, third, the third wife, Makah, uh, her dad, she was a princess, and so when David marries her, that aligns her dad's kingdom with his kingdom. And, and Geshur was just north of where Ishbosheth was reigning. And so that maybe puts a little bit of pressure on him. Many of the marriages did have those political implications to them. But my, my take would be um, 
When I think marriage, I think Genesis 1 and 2, one man, one woman until death, and anything other than that is less than ideal. In Deuteronomy 17, I think it's 17, uh, when God gives the law to Moses and he speaks specifically about a future king, he says, make sure your king doesn't take many wives because they will lead his heart astray. And we see that. As you read through the book of First and Second Kings, you can see that that happens, particularly when kings marry foreign wives. It happens to David's son, Solomon. A kind of he's the classic picture of that. So I would say what David did was culturally acceptable for sure. It was less than ideal in terms of what God says for marriage, and ultimately it wasn't helpful. And so there's no commentary on it here in this section because this is all about David's house growing stronger, and this is an expression of that strength. But I don't think that David in this case, uh, I, I think he, I think he was wrong. I think he missed the boat uh, in marrying these multiple. Wives. Uh, verse 6, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. This very day I'm loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner, because he was afraid of him. So here's another picture of Saul's house growing weaker. Abner, again, Saul's cousin, commander of the army, power behind the throne, and he is strengthening his position in Ishbosheth's court, in the in in the leadership group there uh, in the north, Ishbosheth accuses him of a treasonous act. So kings would have harems; they were the king's property. If someone were to touch one of the women in that group, that's basically saying I'm the king. That was a royal privilege, and for somebody to take that, they were saying I have a claim to be king. And so that's what Ishbosheth goes to Abner with. Why did you do, do this? Notice Abner doesn't deny, but he's very much offended. He's very indignant in his response is, I'm done with you. I'm switching sides. I'm going to do for David what God promised. I'm going to make him king from the north to the south. That's Dan to Beersheba. And we again see Ishbosheth seems really impotent, really weak. He doesn't do anything. I mean, he thinks that Abner, I don't know why he would make the accusation if he didn't believe it was true. Nothing good's going to come of it otherwise. If he believes it's true, he doesn't act. Again, it's a treasonous act, and he doesn't do anything to um, punish Abner or rein him in at all. So uh, moving forward, a lot of what you think about this chapter will depend on what you think about Abner. Some people see him in a, a kind of a more favorable light, and some people see him in a less favorable light. If you see him in a more favorable light, you may say he's a man who is loyal and who is, uh, he's a man of honor. We saw that a little bit last week in the way uh, he led his troops and the way he dealt with um, Asahel, Joab's brother, in a one-on-one battle. You may see that here. He's someone who would say, even though I know God has chosen David to be the king, I'm loyal to my family. I'm Saul's cousin. And so I'm helping you, Ishbosheth. Even though I know, ultimately, God wants David, this is how loyal I am to you, and I'm committed. This is the army that I was a part of. I'm committed to this thing, and you have so offended me by questioning my loyalty that I'm done with you. You may see in Ishbosheth some of his dad, Saul, Saul who um, baselessly accused David, his most loyal follower, of 
trying to uh, undermine his authority. Maybe you see the same thing here where, where for no reason at all, Ishbosheth this, uh, accuses his most, his most loyal supporter of trying to undermine him. That, that may be how you see him. That's not how I see him. I see him in a less favorable light. I think Abner is for Abner uh, all the way. And to me, the most critical statement about his heart is verse 9 and 10, where he says, I know God has promised David the throne. And so then I want to say, well, then why are you working against him? It doesn't matter who your family is. If you know that God has promised David the throne, then why are you propping up Ishbosheth? Why are you trying to expand his influence? And why are you trying to reduce David's influence. Why are you actively working against what you know to be God's will? So to me, that's the picture of his, uh, of his heart. I, I think he sees himself, he was a commander in Saul's army. So if he's thinking about himself and his position, he's going to have a better one with Ishbosheth than he is with David at this point. And then when he realizes, you know what, Ishbosheth doesn't trust me anymore. I think Abner was sleeping with the concubine. And I, I think he was doing that in order to uh, strengthen his position in the house of Saul. I think he was called on it. Again, he doesn't deny it. And I think he realizes, okay, I've lost my place here. So I'm going to take what I've got and I'm going to go to David and say, hey, can we make a deal? I can help align these other tribes uh, behind you. And you'll see that's kind of how it plays out. But you can see him however you want. You can see him favorably if you want to. That's just not the way uh, I read him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? He doesn't really answer that question. Make an agreement with me. That word agreement is covenant. So that's not a deal, kind of the way we think of deal. That's covenant. That's a, it's a strong relational word. Make a covenant with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. So that's Abner's pitch to David. Good, said David. I will make an agreement, a covenant with you. But I demand one thing of you. Don't come into my presence unless you bring Michael the daughter of Saul, when you come see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had Michael taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way, that's sad, to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go home. <laughs> so he went back. That's. What are you going to do? So, if y'all remember, Michael is Saul's daughter and uh, David's first wife. Before any of those six that we read about, she was married to David. He did. He he paid the price for her, the bride price. He said, "I don't have any money." And Saul said, "Here." He he actually Saul was using Michael to try to ensnare David. It didn't work. Michael loved David. Saul thought he could. He knows David doesn't have any money. And so he's not going to be able to afford to, to the price for the king's daughter. And Saul says, here it is. Just kill 100 Philistines and bring me their foreskins. And David kills 200 and brings them to him. And so Michael is his wife. When David flees from Saul uh, because Saul is trying to kill him, Saul takes Michael and gives her to another man, to this guy, Paltiel. David never divorced her. And so what he says to Abner, maybe as a, to, to display Abner, that Abner is serious about this treaty, again, this is a guy who's been leading um, the army against him and against uh, his group uh, for the past couple of years. Maybe it's to demonstrate Abner's seriousness. Maybe it's because he really loves Michael. Maybe it's just political. Maybe it's some combination. We don't know. But he says, I want Michael back. And so then David 
goes straight to Ishbosheth and says, send me Michael. That, that would be his sister. Send her back to me. And Ishbosheth does. I, I don't know why he does. I'm, I'm, I don't know if he actually wants to be the king. He doesn't really do anything that makes you think he wants to be the king. And this is another example. Once David and Michael are reunited, you can see the political um, expediency there. You've now united David's family and Saul's family. And so people who are pro-Saul are going to be okay. It's going to help appease them on some level. And so Michael is brought back to David. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you've wanted to make David your king, now do it. For the Lord promised David by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away in peace. So uh, at this point, Abner goes to David personally. Previously, he sent messengers, which made sense. Again, he, was, he had been the, the face of the opposition, so maybe he was a little nervous about approaching David, so he sent messengers. David is amenable to, an, to a covenant. And now Abner, he goes to the, the elders, all the local leadership, says, let's unite behind David. He spends extra time in Benjamin. That's where Saul was from. It's also where Abner was from. He spends extra time there. That's probably the group that would be the hardest to bring over to David, not only because they were Saul's family, but maybe also they thought, well, David may kill us because we're Saul's family. And so Abner goes to them to reassure them, and then he personally goes to David. He, he brings a group for sure. He doesn't go just himself. He's got 20 guys with him. And he goes to David and says, here's what, I'm, here's what I've done. I've lined up everybody else. All the rest of the tribes are ready to make you the king. And David, and David says, great. And he sends Abner away. And the NIV says, quote, in peace. That's a big word. That word is shalom. That doesn't just mean he, he patted him on the back and said, good job. It means they've, they're, they're in right relationship. Remember, Abner was approaching David looking for covenant, and David said, I'll make a covenant with you. So what it appears with David sending him away in peace is they have solidified that covenant. Abner has said, I'm bringing the rest of the nation to you for you to rule. And the, the assumption is that David has said to Abner in terms of going in peace, I'm not holding anything that you did against you. I'm not going to punish you. You're not going to be uh, disciplined or judged for leading this army against me. You and me are in right relationship. He may have even promised him a place in his... So that's how that section ends with Abner. Now, verse 22. So this now gets very personal. Just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. So that's how David was uh, taking care of his people. He was raiding nine Israelite cities and bringing back the stuff and using that to feed his troops and his people. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, the son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he's gone. You know, Abner, son of Ner, he came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything that you're doing. 
Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sira, so that's a place to get water. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately, and there to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. So we're going to pause there. So do you remember last week in chapter 2, during this battle with, at Gibeon, Asahel, who's one of Joab's brothers, another one of David's nephews, is chasing Abner. And Abner says to him, stop chasing me. You don't have any weapons. <coughs> Excuse me. You need to fight somebody else and get their weapons, and then you can fight me. And Asahel keeps pursuing him. And, then jo- and Abner says, don't. Don't fight me. I don't, if I kill you, I won't be able to look your brother Joab in the face. Continues to chase him. He gets so close, he gets really close to him, and then Joab jabs him in the stomach with the, with the butt end of his spear, with the blunt end of his spear, goes through Asahel's stomach and kills him, gores him. So that's how Asahel died. So keep that in mind, that's Joab's brother. And so now Joab finds that David has made a covenant with Abner two times in that little section. We know, Joab knows David sent Abner away in peace, in shalom, well-being, right relationship between them. And so he says, you can't trust this guy. At least that's what he says. You can't trust him. And maybe there's some truth to that, at least based on what we've seen of Abner up to this point. He sends messengers after Abner to bring him back. And Abner comes back. Why? Because in his mind, he's safe. He's not suspicious of Joab calling him back. Because he has a covenant with his boss. He has a covenant with David. And so he's protected. And Joab pulls him aside into a room and stabs him in the stomach and kills him. Now, there was a provision in the Old Testament law that if you murdered me, then my brother, he's my closest male relative, could kill you and was supposed to kill you as punishment for that. That was only if you, it was premeditated murder. The Old Testament says ma- killing with malice of forethought. It was planned. It was premeditated. It was your intention. And if that was the case, then it, was, it would be my brother's responsibility to, he was called the avenger of blood, to kill you for that. That's not what we see here. Asahel was killed in battle. He wasn't murdered. And it, it doesn't appear that Joab even intended to kill him in a, in a battle. He hit him with the blunt end of his spear after he'd warned him twice. I think he was trying to knock the wind out of him, knock him down, and get him to back off. I think that's what Abner was trying to do. And Joab kills Abner anyway, and he also kills him in Hebron. There were six cities in the land where you would run to. Like, if you killed me, you would run to Hebron. And that meant my brother couldn't touch you there. It was a city of refuge. And then you'd be brought to trial. And if it was determined that you killed me intentionally, then you'd be given to my brother. And if it turned that you killed me, if it turned out that you killed me accidentally, then you would live in Hebron. And you would stay there. My brother couldn't touch you as long as you were in that city. It was called a city of refuge. Joab brings Abner back into the one of those cities. So even if he thinks Abner murdered his brother, which he couldn't because of the way he died in battle, but even if that's what he thinks, he's in a city where he can't touch him anyway. He can't touch him anyway. You see that whether you, it's vengeance or whatever that is in Joab is out of control. And so he kills Abner unjustly. And here's David's response. Later, when David heard about this, 
He said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. I want you to listen to how far David distances himself from Joab. We're innocent. May Abner's blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. This is his nephew, so he's just laid this curse on him and the rest of his family. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he killed their brother Asahel in the battle of Gibeon. We just saw that. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. So you killed him and now you're going to participate in the funeral. You're going to walk in front of the body. King David himself walked behind the bier. They buried Abner in Hebron. And the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. So he buries him in his capital city. All the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as a lawless die, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. You fell as one who falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over Abner again. Then they all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sunset. So David is also fasting. All of those things are to say I had nothing to do with this. He says, I'm innocent. There's going to be a curse on Joab and his family for doing this. Joab, you're participating in the funeral. I'm participating in the funeral. He composes and sings a lament. He fasts for Abner, buries him in the capital city. All of these things that he does to demonstrate I had nothing to do with this. Really important, he just made a covenant with Abner. And if he kills him two hours later, then nobody's going to think David's trustworthy. They're not going to believe him when he says, I'm going to forgive whatever you did in terms of supporting Ishbosheth. There's no reason to believe his word if he, in fact, has killed Abner. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything David did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that David had no part in the murder of Abner. Then David said to his men, do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel today? And today, though I'm anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zeruiah, such Joab and Abishai, are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoers according to his evil deeds. Now, I think that's a cop-out. I think that last sentence from David is no good. He's saying, he's, he's the king, the whole chapter is David's house is growing stronger and stronger. Ab is strong. That's not the, that, that word is not the same word. It's not the opposite of weak. That word is actually, um, it's, uh, is used of an ox that's stubborn. It's, they're resistant, they're stubborn, they're difficult, they're too hard for me, they're too much for me. He's basically saying, I can't handle Joab and his brother. These are his nephews. I can't handle them. I'm weak, and, and they're too stubborn and difficult for me, so just let God deal with them. Which on one hand, you could say, well, that's really faithful. But on the other, it's a complete abdication of responsibility. He just killed Abner in cold blood in this city of refuge. Two strikes. He should kill Joab. That's the punishment. He doesn't do anything, either because it's his family. And we'll see moving forward, David has a huge blind spot when it comes to his family. He shows very little uh, inclination and ability to discipline his own, the, the men in his family. And th this is an indication of that. And or because Joab is so important, he's really good at leading the army. And David's like, I can't, I can't lose him right now. The guy who might have replaced him, he killed already. So I got, there, there's nobody here. 
I don't know why he doesn't do it, but to me, this feels weak from David. It feels like a justification and a rationalization for not punishing, not disciplining Joab, letting him off the hook. So for us, what does that look like for us? Again, this chapter can seem very far removed from our life. Thank you. Uh, One second. Two generals following two kings. Ishbosheth has Abner following him. Joab is following David. Both of those kings, or both of those generals, excuse me, break from their king. Abner breaks from Ishbosheth because of this accusation that he slept with a concubine. Joab breaks with David, at least temporarily, over the, over the fact that David made a covenant with Abner versus holding him responsible for killing Asahel and killing him in response. So we have two guys who are following kings and who break from them. You can see where we're going with this. The heart, the essence of Jesus' invitation to us is follow me. It's what he says to Peter. It's what he says to Andrew. It's what he says to Matthew. It's what he says to the rich young ruler. It's, it's what he says when he says, if anyone be my disciple, then you've got to follow me. That's what it means. This invitation to follow him is the essence of what it means to relate rightly to Jesus. And all of us can have a tendency to be Joab or Abner a little bit in our following of Jesus. And so I want to dive into that whole idea of what does it look like? Or, or maybe the question this morning for you is really just this. Are you following Jesus this morning? Are you following him? The answer is ultimately yes or no. There's variation there, but ultimately it's one of those two answers. You may say, no, I'm not. I've never followed him. And I would say, well, well, why not? Is it a lack of information? Maybe you just don't know him well enough to commit your life to him. We talked about Alpha. That'd be a great spot. If for you, one of the things that's holding you back from following Jesus is you don't feel like you understand him or you don't feel like you know him well enough for what it would mean to follow him, Alpha's a great place to explore that and to learn a little more. It may be a desire issue on you. I don't know why I would. I don't really have any, there's, no, there's nothing pulling me in that direction. I don't, I'm not really hungry for that. It's nothing I want. I would encourage you, and this may seem weird as someone who's not following Jesus, is just to pray and say, God, if this is something that's important, then I pray you'd stir a hunger in me to follow you. Show me why it's important. Show me why I would need to commit my life to following you. And he'll, he'll do that. You may say, I used to follow him, but I don't now. So the answer now is no. Well, was that an intentional choice on your part? Did you make a decision at some point in the past to say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out. For m- many people, it's much more unintentional. We're disappointed maybe. God didn't uh, meet our expectations on some level, and so it hurts, and so we kind of pull back from him a little bit. And then we wake up one day and kind of go, Where, well, I've, I've lost connection here. For others, sometimes it's, it's just we're distracted in this world that we live in, the, the busyness of life. Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, um, the worries of this world. Those kind of things can just choke out this desire that we may have to follow Jesus. And again, we wake up in three months or six months or four years and go, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I never made an intentional choice to stop following 
But as I look, I would say I started pursuing other things. And if you're in that boat, then I would encourage you to own that, confess, whether it's intentional or unintentional. This is where I am to repent. That means to move in a different direction. I want to begin to follow you again. Jesus is gracious to receive you back in that way. Many of you, though, the answer is yes, I'm, I'm following him. And that's great. And I want to dive into that yes just a little bit. There's an Abner yes, and I think this is probably, might not apply to any of you, but we'll see. An Abner yes is insincere. I think if we asked Abner, are you following Ishbosheth? He would have said yeah, but he wasn't, and he never was. He was using Ishbosheth as the sole surviving son of Saul to get where he wanted to go. He wasn't following him, he was using him. He was strengthening himself in Ishbosheth's house. Ishbosheth had the lineage to be the king. Abner had the desire to be the king. And he was using Ishbosheth to accomplish that purpose. And once it became clear that he wasn't going to be able to do that anymore, he switched sides to see if David could have, would have a place for him. Again, there's an insincerity there. And there are people, again, I don't, those are, I, I don't, I'm looking around the room, and I don't see that here. But there are people who that is their approach to Jesus. They may say they're following him, but it's insincere. They're just wanting something that Jesus can give them. You can see that. I think it's in Acts, I think it's 8, Simon the Magician. Someone, uh, he's in Samaria, and he is, he is, he, on, he's, he's been baptized, and he, he appears to be following the Lord, and then, the apostles come from Jerusalem when they lay hands on people. They're filled with the Spirit, and there are these physical signs that are associated with that. And Simon says, can, you give, can I pay for that? Can I buy that power from you? And it demonstrates his heart. He wasn't interested in following Jesus. He saw Jesus as the means to power, which is what he wanted. And what Peter says to him is, you're done. This is not good. Not good for you at all. Again, I think that's rare. Uh, I would say probably even non-existent in this room. But you may, you may know people who are in that case. I think more often, though, for us, there's maybe a Joab yes. I think if we had said, asked Joab, are you following David? He would have said yes, and I think it was sincere. I think he was. I think he truly was following David. And he didn't realize that he wasn't until they came to a point of where David's treatment of Abner differed from the way Joab wanted Abner treated. There was this thing in Joab that was deeper than his commitment to David. Whether it was his commitment to his family or a desire for revenge or some combination of that or even some part of him that says, I want to protect my own place. And Abner's arrival and he's just as good at this as me in terms of leading an army. I don't know. But there was something in Joab that trumped his loyalty to David. And when David made a decision that contradicted what Joab thought was best, Joab went with Joab. Instead of going with David. And that I think is all too common of, uh, among those of us who follow Jesus. We do follow him and we're sincere in our following. And yet there remains one love or one desire that we don't fully submit. And when that love or that desire comes into conflict with Jesus, we choose that love. Where we choose that desire. A common one where we live is family. Just like maybe that was Joab's motivation. We will follow Jesus unless it costs our family something. Or unless it costs us something within our family. And then we say, I'm out. 
a good God would never ask me to. And I would say, read the Gospels. He says, this is what I'm doing. I'll divide families. Not because I enjoy dividing families, but because people have to make a choice. And I ultimately have to mean more to you than your spouse or your children or your parents or your siblings. That's a common one for us. Sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a self-interesting in terms of what we want for our life. You can think about it like this. This is a corny example, but it may help you visualize. So, let's say, there we are. We're at Stonebridge. We're green. Jesus is with us. And after church, he's hungry like the rest of us are. And he says, I want to go to Marietta Pizza. That's red. And we say, okay, we're going to follow him. We show the next. So, we have a couple of options. Marietta Pizza is red. I think these slides are wrong. That's my fault, not yours. The blue up there is Willie Ray's. That's another place to eat. And so it could very well be that when Jesus says to us, hey, do you want to go to lunch? We say yes. And with all of our hearts, we sincerely believe we're following him. And we do follow him up to the corner. And we get to the local. And he goes straight. Because that's the way you get to Marietta Pizza. And I think, I kind of really wanted Willie Ray's. And so I turn right. And I take a different path from him. And I may not have known that when I was walking out and walking up the street. I didn't realize until I come to that corner that where he's going, where I'm going, are not the same thing. I thought I was following him, but I was really just walking in the same direction with him for a while. It's not the same thing. There's a big difference between walking in the same hungry, we're both going to lunch. But then when it comes down to the restaurant, the actual choice, I'm not following I'm going where I want to go, not where he wants me to go. And it could be that even at that corner, maybe I make the choice to continue to walk with him. I don't know what the slides are now. So good. So at that corner, at the local, I decide, you know what? I'm going to continue to stick with him. And I get all the way up to Prest, the next corner. And then I think, man, I really, are you sure you don't want to go to Willie Ray's? And he says, no, it's Marietta Pizza. And he turns, he walks straight, turns left, and I turn right at that corner. It could be that along the way, I've, I have submitted to him. Maybe I've, I've, I've denied my desires for one or two or three or four times. But then ultimately, when it comes right down to it at the end, I can't. There's a difference between following and just walking in the same direction. So for those of us who would say, yes, I'm following, I think the question for us this morning is really, are you? Am I? And you would say, well, how do I know? Well, it's in the decision point. It's when you're standing on the corner and he goes straight and you want to go right. Are you going to say, you know what? I want to go right, but I'm going to go straight instead because that's where he is. How do you know? You, You know in the decision. If you've been at that corner and you've gone right when he was going straight, there's grace for you. We're faithless, he remains faithful. That's 1 Timothy 2. And so you can always confess and repent, and he welcomes us home. And we all do that at times. That's that's our track record. Even with all sincerity, when we say yes, we know at times we're going to Joab. We're going to do what we want instead of what he wants us to do, and he graciously welcomes us back home when we confess that and we repent and commit to walking after him again. Are there things that you can do in the now 
so that when you're standing at the corner, you do make the, the, the choice of a follower. You do make the submitted choice. I would say one of the things you can do, and this may seem counterintuitive, is to acknowledge your own desires. If you're willing to say, I want to go to Willie Ray's, then it's much easier for God to deal with that desire. It becomes difficult when that remains suppressed. If it's not something that you're willing to bring before him, if you're not willing to state that, then it's something he can't really deal with directly. You haven't brought it in front of him. He obviously knows it because he knows all things, but it's not something that's present in your relationship with him. Does that make sense? Those of you who are married have probably experienced this. Where do you want to go to eat? I don't care. Where do you want? I don't care. I really don't care. Okay, let's go eat Mexican. I don't want that. <laughs> All right, just just tell tell me what, what, what I need it out here, and we can deal with it. It just needs to be out here, and then we could, don't make me guess. And the same thing is true in our relationship with the Lord, even though He knows all things. If we're not willing to bring those things before Him, then there's nothing He can do with them. So the first thing, it's one of the reasons we do birthday prayers, is we want one of the things I think within the church that we're not great at, especially in an affluent context, is we tend to say, I don't need anything, therefore I don't ask for anything. It's not the approach of a child to a father. What we want to recognize is our need for God, our dependence upon him. And one of the ways of doing that is saying, God, these are the desires of my heart. These are the things that I want. I acknowledge those before you. And then the second thing is to submit those to him. This, I want to go to Willie Ray's. But ultimately, I'm going to go where you want me to go. It's the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup from me, but not what I want, what you want. That's what Jesus says. The first thing he says is, this is what I want. I want you to take this cup from me. I don't want to die. But... Ultimately, I'll submit my desire to yours. If it's what you want, then I'll say yes. Unless you acknowledge your desires, submitting to the Lord, it it short-circuits the process. It's not thorough and it's not deep. And when those desires are challenged, you're going to follow them. We We ultimately move in the direction of what we want. And if we're not willing to put those things on the table then God never has the opportunity to sanctify them, either to affirm them and say, yes, that's great, let's go eat there, or to say, no, this is what's better, and I need you to trust me. If those desires are never acknowledged, then they remain under the surface, and they pull us in the direction of them. We we move towards what we love. And so we want to acknowledge those things before the Lord. This is what I want, but ultimately I'm going to submit to you. That's the in-the-moment thing. What I would encourage you to do over time is, get, is to acknowledge what you want. Do the, the process, the, the discipline of submitting to the Lord, even though there's time, you're not going to have to do that. You don't have to do that as you're walking up the street because you all are going in the same direction. It's only when you get to the corner that that submission becomes reality and you have to make a choice. That's an in-the-moment thing. What you can be doing over time to make that in-the-moment choice easier is spending time with the Lord. As you're in his presence, then you'll begin to develop tastes like him. You'll want pizza because that's what he wants. As you spend more time with him, then the things that he wants will... He doesn't doesn't take over. I don't want you to hear that. We always have the, the freedom to move and God desires for us to be mature sons and daughters. Think about those of you who are older and what... You have grown children, what you want for them. You don't want them calling you all the time. 
what should I eat for lunch? What should I wear today? You don't want them doing that. Like you said, I've, tra- I've given to you. Like be, be an adult here. Continue to relate to me. But you, you don't have to call me for everything. And there's a sense in which that's what God's looking for from us in terms of maturity is this sense of recognition. He's formed us into the image of his son. And so we can, make, we can move and we can live and we can make decisions, not independent of him, but because we've been conformed into his image and transformed by him. And so as you spend time in his presence, I don't want you to hear him saying he somehow takes over and you're, he erases everything that is you at all. He's created you. There are things that are wonderful about you, but there's this sense in which you begin to say, I recognize in my father these desires, this agenda, this direction that he's going, and I want that too. I recognize that that's good and right. That's better than what I want. It's better than what I want. That's bigger than what I can imagine. And so I begin to say, I'm going to lay some of my agenda down to take up yours because yours is better than mine. Yours is more righteous, it's more holy, it's more loving, it's more gracious. Mine is selfish and small. And so as you spend time with him, that begins to happen as you are in the word and you realize, hey, these are things that God values. You'll begin to value those things. As you spend time with him in worship, you'll begin to sense his presence and you'll know as you're living, this is God moving me in this direction. Your heart will become tender to the things that for God are serious issues, things that maybe at this point you're callous to, you'll become more sensitized to as you spend time in his presence in worship. As you spend time in prayer, you hear his voice and you're pouring your heart out to him and receiving from him. He'll begin to line you up with the things that he desires. So it's not that you'll never know. Ultimately, we don't know until we have to decide, am I following or am I walking in the same direction? What we can do, because I think the yes is sincere, acknowledge my desires before him, submit those desires to him, and spend time in his presence now when we're on this block. So when I get to the corner and I have to make a decision, my heart has been conditioned by time with him. So that when he says, it's pizza, I'll say, okay, that may not have been what I wanted, but I know it's what's best. And so I'm sticking with you. Let's take a minute and pray. Think about that question honestly this morning. Are you following? And the answer is yes or no. If the answer is no, the best thing you can say is the answer is no. No reason to pretend. If it's I've never, would you ask the Lord? I would encourage you. God, I've never never followed you. This is what I feel like I need in order to take that first step. Tell him what you need. There's things I don't understand about you. I'm scared. I like my life. I don't want you to mess it up. Whatever those things are. Give him access to those things. See what happens. If it's I used to, but I don't anymore. Do you acknowledge that this morning? And if you're willing... Acknowledge it before the Lord. Just confess, God, I'm not. I'm not following. I'm drifting. 
maybe I'm drifting in the same direction I used to be walking, but there's no intentionality behind it at all. Would you confess that this morning? Either because you've made a deliberate decision, because for whatever reason, or just unintentionally, you got hurt or you got busy. You took your eyes off of it. If you're willing, would you recommit to following him? If he answers yes, would you take a step deeper? God, would you maybe just pray this? Holy Spirit, would you search my own heart? Would you show me if I'm actually following Jesus, if I'm keeping in step with you, Holy Spirit, or if we just happen to be walking in the same direction for a time? willing, pray this. God, is there another love in my own heart that would challenge my yes to you? Is there anything that I love in my own life more than I love you? And you may think with your mind, the answer is no. Give him an opportunity to show you your heart.